Father, as we come together now to open Your Word, we ask that Your Holy Spirit You would open our hearts and our minds to receive from You each where we are walking right now in our need. And we ask, Lord, that You would just uh, uh, be with us. Like I said, open our eyes our minds through Your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, Amen. You may be seated. We continue in Matthew. We are in chapter 21 today, the first 11 verses. And uh, as we, uh, oh, before I think of anything else, uh, just a reminder, daily breads. They're here for December, Mar- uh, December, uh, January, February. They're out on the counters. So uh, now, I, now I don't have to worry about that. Uh, Matthew 21, 1 through 11. Uh, we uh, are... Entering the last week of the life of Christ on this earth, the Passion Week. Uh, and we start with what is considered the triumphal entry. And so that's where we'll begin today, verses 1 through 11 of chapter 21. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find the donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and He will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken of by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey and and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks. And Jesus sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before Him and followed Him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when He entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Bethphagee was a small Almost, you'd almost look at it like a suburb of, of, of the city of Jerusalem, just a few miles away from Jerusalem, up onto the, the uh, Mount of Olives in that area. And uh, it was between Bethany uh, and, and Jerusalem. Bethany is the place where Lazarus lived and Mary and, and uh, Martha, his sisters, uh, Lazarus' sisters, where Jesus had healed Lazarus. In fact, that event happened just shortly before this point in time. And so, uh, we have Jesus as He's approaching Jerusalem, uh, you know, uh, a very short distance away from Jerusalem, he, you know, near Bethphage, and, and, and He looks over to the village and He tells the disciples, hey, I want you to go down there. And immediately as you go into this village, you're going to see a donkey and her colt 
Untie them and bring them back to me. If anyone asks, tell them the Lord has need of them. Now, this is a new approach for Jesus. This is something He hasn't done before. We've never seen Him for actually, we've never seen Him do anything but walk. This is the first time we're going to see Him on on a donkey. And I've had some people say, well, if you want to count the time in his, his mother's womb, it never says that he, she was on a donkey. We have all sorts of Christmas cards that tell us that, but, but it doesn't say it in Scripture. Uh, but this is the first time that he actually uses, uh, it, recordedly at least, another means of transportation other than walking. He says, go, untie Bring. Very deliberate, very intent, you know, very direct request. And then he says, let them know that the Lord has need of them. And because of that, they'll, they'll let them go. And in Mark, it actually says, he adds to it, and uh, let, the Lord know, let them know that the Lord has need of them and they will be returned soon. So Jesus wasn't asking them as a gift, but still, immediately, this owner sends them. He's, he just, there's no quibble, there's no argument. And you, you, you look at this and you think, you know, uh, how eager this man actually seems to, to let them go to two people that it doesn't say they knew each other. But once he said the Lord has need, once the two disciples said the Lord has need of them, he okay. And according to verse 4, this took place. All of this happened for a specific reason. To fulfill what was spoken of by the prophet. And then the, 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 the quote is given here in chapter 5. Uh, coming from uh, Isaiah 62, the first phrase, but basically from Zechariah 9.9. 9. Say to the daughter of Zion... Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Very direct, very specific picture here that's being drawn. Zechariah, 700 plus years before this ever happens, writes this verse. And Matthew is saying this was done, you know, what was here accomplished was done so that this prophecy would be fulfilled. Again, like I said, as you look at this unfolding, very direct with authority, intentional, deliberate. And we begin to look at fulfilled prophecy, messianic prophecies, if you will. And this one is kind of easy to look at in the sense that one could actually look at it and say, uh, you know, did Jesus set this one up? I mean, could he not? And, and I've read some of the commentators, even the conservative ones, say, well, Jesus had prearranged the picking up of the donkeys. Is that possible? It doesn't say it, but yeah, I suppose it's possible. But it, I really don't think that's the case. I really think there is a supernatural event, if you will, happening here. Jesus, as he could see the, uh, the minds of people, as he could calm the storm, as he could do all the other things that he's shown he could do, he knew what was ahead. He knew this prophecy needed would, would be fulfilled. And he ordered this done. Now, did Jesus know this prophecy? 
Yes. Did Jesus know it needed to be fulfilled? Yes. In that sense, He knew all of the prophecies. There wasn't one He didn't know. little side trip here, because this is really important for me. Because it has a lot to do with my coming to the Lord. And I'm not sure how many of you are familiar with uh, uh, Josh McDowell and his book, Evidence of the Demands of Verdict. A couple of volumes, you can get it in one big volume or you know, you still can find the the two set books around too, and and then there's a a, a small, very readable, very uh, thin book called uh, More Than a Carpenter, and uh, it speaks of the prophecies. This, as I was trying to figure out why so many people that I knew and were friends of Kathy's and mine were becoming Christians. And, and possibly one of the most uh, uh, ones that caught me off guard was when we had moved from uh, Paradise, California back to Atascadero where Kathy's mom lived to, and opened up and started a, a small shop. And uh, I was looking at all these different things uh, of, of uh, uh, what... God was opening my heart to, but I, in the sense of trying to figure out, like I said, why? I couldn't wrap my mind around the resurrection. And then somebody told me about prophecies. Handed me a, a, some stuff from Josh McDowell. I don't even know if it was in the book form yet. And, uh, and then Josh McDowell was a guest speaker at Cal Poly, which was just down the road from where we were living. So I, I, I went and I heard... And he went through this thing of the prophecies. And it absolutely just nailed me to the wall. You know, and, 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 and Josh McDowell got a lot of his information from a guy by the name of Peter Stone. And, uh, or Stoner. And, and his calculations on mathematics probabilities in reference to someone fulfilling these prophecies in their lifetime Basically, by just walking through their life and it happening. You know, in other words, being at the right place at the right time, all those kinds of things. And there are eight specific prophecies that he draws on to start his, his, his study with. Uh, uh, again, this is Peter Stoner's study, going back to it, which was done in the 50s. Eight specific prophecies that he draws from out of probably, you know, in, and this is where it gets hard to measure exactly, a couple of hundred or more prophecies in reference to the coming of Christ. And the reason, somebody says, well, I think there's over 300, aren't there? There's a mixing of first coming and second coming within the framework of that, and some of them even being fulfilled here and here in the same wording. So I, I'm very cautious of how I said that. But the reality is is, is that there, there were a number of them, and he... He took eight out of these, which had very specific things. For one, he took Micah 5.2, which designated the birthplace of Jesus. 
and he, I'm not going to go through the calculations that he did because I, I don't have Levi here to help me. And, uh, and, it, and it, it's equations and different things about numbers of people in Bethlehem at the time and all sorts of other things that have to be put together to bring this about. And uh, so, you know, he takes Micah 5.2. He takes Malachi 3.1, which is there is a messenger that's going to come ahead of Christ and prepare the way, a forerunner of Jesus, whom we know to be John the Baptist. Zechariah 9.9, the Scripture that we have today. Jesus coming into Jerusalem, riding on a colt. Not a grown donkey, a colt. And, and, uh, and understand, when we add Matthew, Mark, uh, Mark, Luke, and John into the picture, a colt that's never been ridden. It's not been broken. Okay? And, and, and so, Zechariah 9.9, a colt. And, and, and so that's added into this picture. So the fourth one is Zechariah 13.6. The Messiah will be betrayed by a friend and suffer wounds at that hand's friends. It also tells, deals with Zechariah 11.12 is the fifth one where the Messiah will be betrayed. And it says very specifically, you read Zechariah 11.13, and, and, and it says that, uh, that Jesus is going to be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. And actually, that they're, they're going to be thrown into the potter's field, and that they're going to be used to, or to to buy the, the the potter's field. Those are prophecies written hundreds of years before they happen. Isaiah fifty three seven: the Messiah will remain silent while he is afflicted. And out of Psalm twenty two sixteen, his hands and his feet would be pierced. He will go on in a further list to bring in 48 you know, total prophecies. Uh, and, and at that point, uh, he adds a, a, another one, for instance, from Psalm 22, which talks about them being at the foot of Jesus and casting lots for His clothing. All these different prophecies. And I'm sitting there thinking, okay, you know, these, these were written, you know, maybe were they written as folklore? You know? And you start to study and you start to research and you start to see the different places they're written in the Gospels and, and, and you realize this is an amazing thing. What are the odds? And so from a fairly scientific approach, if you will, this is what Peter Stoner came up with. One for these eight prophecies to be founded, uh, fulfilled, the probability is 1 in 10 to the 17th power. Now, generally speaking, that means nothing to me. Uh, but 10 to the 17th power means a 10 with 17 more zeros after it. These first eight prophecies that I've given you to fulfill them, the odds would be 1 in 10 with 17 zeros following it. Now, generally speaking, we say those are approaching what we call the odds of impossibility. Somebody says, yeah, but it's still the odds. You know, could happen, maybe. 
to fulfill 16 of the prophecies that are our key prophecies. One in 10 to the 45th power, or 45 zeros. The 48 key prophecies, which I, I'm not going to go through them all today, but is 1 to 10 to the 157th power. A, a 10 with 157 zeros after that. I, I remember saying this to kids, and, and, and then I went to an over, we had an overhead projector when I was doing a, a, a teaching children, and, and I wrote, a, wrote it out, 157 zeros. And that you could see they were getting bored. You know, and, but I went ahead and did it and, and, and I, because I wanted them to see. And, and finally, it was kind of like, get on with it. You know? And I was still making zeros. They, they couldn't, they couldn't, just as I can't today, wrap my mind around those kinds of numbers. It doesn't, it, it doesn't happen. And that's a 48. What happens when you get to 128 or 200? And, and, and we, we see other prophecies in addition fulfilled that have to do with Israel and other things. And we realize the book is full of prophecies and they were there for a purpose. To show who Christ is. I had one person say it's the address of Jesus. Meaning that it identifies Him. If somebody mails me a letter, they write it to... You know, Bob Hapgood, 1399 Weber Street, Fortuna, California, 95540. And if you write it internationally, you might have to put in the United States and if it's an Air Force base or a military base, some additional information. You know, depending on, you know, and all of this is so that it can get to the right place. This is done over and over and over again through the Old Testament, hundreds to thousands of years before it happens. The first prophecy of Christ being Genesis 3. That there would be enmity between uh, uh, Satan and, and, and uh, the, uh, the snake and, and the woman because of sin. But the, 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 the seed of the woman uh, would conquer, crush the head of the serpent. And it was singular for a reason. Not the, not the ancestors, uh, not the, 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 the progeny, not the whatever. It was the seed. One particular person who will come out of the lineage of, of, uh, you know, of Adam and Eve, which is the father and mother of all humanity, one would conquer and crush the head of the serpent, meaning take full authority away from him. So we have... This amazing picture, and like I said, to me, it was it was just overwhelming to 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 see and and hear and to wrestle with. What if Jesus had kind of set this one up? Go ahead and read the rest of them. You know, it it's he 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 couldn't manipulate it. He couldn't happen. And, and the irony for me within the framework of this is I'm thinking as I'm learning this stuff, well, if the Pharisees and these Sadducees and these Jewish leaders and teachers hated Jesus so much, didn't they know these prophecies by heart? If these are key messianic prophecies, weren't they repeating them and, and hoping for them and stuff like that? 
Why didn't they see him being fulfilled in Jesus and try to interfere? It's very clear what Scripture says about the eyes of the, of the, of the Jewish leaders. They were blinded. They, through their, their, their anger, through their hate, and through the fact that they were refusing to see anything but their idea fulfilled, they refused it. We can get that way. We can get so blinded at times over certain things, so, I, I call it hypercritical, that something can be absolutely right and we'll say it's absolutely wrong. I know at least I've been in that situation more than once in my life. I'm assuming you have too. They were blinded by their rejection of Christ. God's plan. And we read that that's nothing new. They were continually wearing blinders, if you will, narrowing their vision. All through the, the, the Old Testament, we see the Hebrew people over and over and over again get tunnel vision. Even uh, you know the book of Hebrews talks about it several times in reference to uh, how it kept them from seeing what God was planning and doing. Well, getting back on trap, the disciples go and, and they do bring the, the, the donkey and the colt to Jesus. And verse 7 says that they, that they put their cloaks or their, their outer garments on them uh, so that when they got to Jesus, He could choose one of them to ride. And, and uh, He chooses the, the colt, which had never been ridden. And the ride begins. They're coming down the hill before they ever get to Jerusalem. They're still up a couple of miles out, if you will. There's already a throng, a crowd, following them and surrounding them. They've been following them and surrounding them since Lazarus' resurrection. Now, you've got to think about that. That was a pretty amazing thing. You know the, 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 the account, I'm sure. You see it in John chapter 11. Jesus has come and Mary and Martha say, hey, we, you know, Lazarus is really sick. I think he might die. They send a servant to Jesus to, to come and say, Jesus, come. We need you. Lazarus is sick. Jesus was a day's journey away. So it took a day for these, this, these servants to get there. They tell, tell Jesus, and he does the strangest thing. He stays around where he is for two more days. And then on the fourth day, if you will, he heads back, which is a day journey. When he gets there, Lazarus is already dead. In fact, Lazarus probably died while the first servant coming to him was en route. Because when he gets back, they say, He's been dead for four days. If you'd only been here, Jesus. And He comforts them. Goes to the tomb. He says, roll back the stone. The men were reluctant. 
They knew what happened to a body after four days in a tomb. It was not going to be a pleasant experience. But they did it. They rolled back the tomb, the the stone to the tomb. Jesus, not standing in or at, but it says near the tomb, says, Lazarus, come forth. I can't ever say that phrase without thinking of of, of a song that the Johnson brothers used to do. It has uh, the, with the Lazarus, Dave and, and, and those guys, with La- that has that phrase in it, Lazarus come forth. And they do such a powerful version of it when they were singing in churches and stuff. But Lazarus come forth. And the next thing, not, not in a few minutes, not, you know, it just says, boom! Immediately. He was... I don't know what I caused, (laughs) but it was a good accent. Uh, Immediately, Lazarus was standing at the tomb fully wrapped in his grave clothes. Now, you know, the first time I ever heard that story, the thing that I had pictures of, which you can you can tell how ignorant I was when you know of all of this was, but that wouldn't be immediately. He'd have to, you know, roll off the, the 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 shelf that he was on, and and somehow crawl, you know, because he's completely wrapped. And they made a point to make sure he understood he was wrapped still. How did he, it, it was a supernatural event, but not only a supernatural event. He he was alive. He wasn't a mummy. <laughs> he was alive. He wasn't only alive, he was hungry. All of these people who had been following after Jesus, they'd been hearing him teach and all these kinds, they were there in Bethany when this happened. And they were amazed. They were excited. They didn't know what to make of it. They had never heard of anything. Somebody dead for days had been raised from, the, from, from his grave. By the way, four days is significant. It is important. Even though I don't believe, and, and, and most scholars don't believe there's any truth to this tradition of some of the Hebrew people, believe that the Spirit stayed with the body for three. So what Jesus did was, even the superstitious were put down with this one. He said, can't even be your superstition. Four days dead, not three. Why did Jesus tarry for two? It was all part of the plan. Jesus moved step by step all through His life according to a plan that was put together before the foundation of the world. And so we just see more of it here coming to fruition. It's interesting to note that the Jewish leadership up to the point that the the raising of Lazarus and Bethany, up to the point they had been trying to figure out how to Get Jesus in a place, a point, and a time where they could arrest him 
and kill him. They had already made that decision. But now that he had raised Lazarus from the dead, they didn't know what to do. That was clearly a supernatural event. There wasn't, this wasn't a prophetic thing fulfilled. It was, just a, it was a supernatural event. And some of them were witness to it. So you know what their final conclusion was? We're going to have to kill Lazarus too. It says right there in Scripture that their decision was not only to look for Jesus and put Him to death, find that place, but we're going to have to put Lazarus to death too. Because everybody will, will, will you know, think it was temporary. I don't know if they were planning to kill Him in secret. What they were planning? I don't think they did either. Can you see the blindness? They were so critical of Jesus, so un- unwanting to hear the voice of God. All they wanted to hear was their own thoughts magnified, their own ideas elevated, their own wants of what they thought a Messiah should be. Jesus didn't fit. And now he comes riding into town on a donkey, a colt never ridden. Now, in in some ways and possibly even some references to the Old Testament, but there there, there is an image of of leaders having done this, which meant coming in peace. If a a, a great leader would come on a donkey to a city, the idea was, I'm coming in peace. So there's a, a reference to that through history, and I think that there's that possibility that it would, it doesn't surprise me that that would be here too. But they didn't want a Messiah coming in peace. They wanted a Messiah coming in power in the sense of political and military. They wanted the Romans out and the Sanhedrin in. They didn't want a Lord. They wanted control. So they plotted to arrest Jesus and they plotted to arrest Lazarus as well with the intent to kill them both. The last week begins. Jesus is coming down the hill. And in verse 9 it says, uh, very clear, it says, the crowds that went before Him and that followed Him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. We read it in Scripture this morning. We sang it in song this morning. Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. Hosanna to the Son of David. They were making, the people were making a declaration. We think this man could well be the Messiah. We're declaring it. Hosanna. Hosanna means literally save us, but it had become a form of praise and, and worship. Uh, and you see it in David's Psalms and, and other places. So the idea was to, to, to say to more in a sense of to the one who saves us. But they, they, they rest, rest with that thought. The one who saves us, the Son of David. Hosanna, praise, worship was being given. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. It's clearly a change in the way Jesus has been approaching things. Up to this point, every time there was an opportunity for someone to 
to draw attention to him, to, to bring uh, you know, any kind of praise or, or anything towards him. He says, keep quiet about this. But this time, it's almost as if he is, one author used the word provoke, but not in a negative or, or uh, manipulative way, but with the intent of he was intending to stir up the crowd because it was time. Now, what Jesus knew, the disciples didn't, was how the week would end as well as how it was going to begin. But these people were following Jesus. Most of them, probably a good portion of them, Galileans, had been following Him since His teaching there, down to Bethany and now in, and they were shouting all of this praise and, 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 and blessings and hosanna to Jesus, the Son of David, to the, to, to the Son of David. And it gets... Louder and louder. And so verse 10 says the whole city is stirred up. Now this word stirred up it has the word seismic tied to it in, in the original language. Now I, again, I'm not a Greek scholar, but I understand what seismic is and I understand what an earthquake is. What they were saying is that this wasn't just uh, stirred up, i.e., you know, uh, you know, a frenzy of people, but stirred up in the sense of just a momentous, electrifying experience going on here. As a result, the Romans and, and, and the, the Pharisees, Sadducees, they all stood back. Nobody was sure what to do. But I'm sure as the Romans looked at this, and this is my personal opinion, I'm not the only person that holds it, but it was just as they looked on and saw this, it was probably more of a joke to them. They had seen triumphal entries. Okay? And when a soldier comes, you know, when a, when a general comes, when a, when a, one, when a leader comes in a, in a triumphal way, he would come on a, a majestic horse with his well-armed army, drummers and trumpeters, and marching in. And anything that you see about Roman history, and, and if you, even the old movies that you see about Roman history, they all show that kind of a picture. There was a lot of pomp in this. Jesus' steed, if you will, is a, is a colt that's never been ridden before. He's not dressed in all sorts of splendor. He's actually dressed in homemade clothes. His saddle isn't gold and silver and, and, and bridle of jewels and stuff like that. He's sitting on a, on a robe of a disciple. And his army around him are a bunch of unarmed people singing songs, Hosanna. I don't think they, they, they knew what to do with Jesus at this point, And they did see him, in a sense, as a threat. And so they weren't about to cause a riot here but I don't think that he posed much of a big threat to them. They had the army. They had the shields and, and, and spears and swords. There was no match. It had been shown over and over and over all through the Palestinian area. They, the, the zealots of the Hebrew people were no match to the Roman army, no matter how many of them there were. The Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders, however, are sitting back with a little bit of concern. 
Because not only are there a crowd falling, following in with Jesus, but Jerusalem is emptying. <laughs> They're coming out of the city as well to greet Him. And it's coming together. And from a Jewish point of view, this is out of control. Now we hear this statement. Who is this? And it doesn't tell us who's making this statement. Ask this question. If it's the Sanhedrin, I think it would have been more in the like, who does he think he is? To the Romans. <laughs> who is this joke? To the people, maybe that were visiting Jerusalem, which would be a substantial number of people, in the hundreds of thousands who come from literally all over the Mediterranean area to go to Passover. You understand how important Passover is to the Hebrew people? And I'm not going to go into the details, but if you lived in Spain and you were Jewish, if you would make it a goal and it would be your, 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 your bucket list, if you will, to make it to Jerusalem at least once on a Passover. It's estimated at, at, at some of the earlier Passovers in the, in the time of Jesus and after the time of Jesus that there could have been as many as two and a half million people in the area of Jerusalem, which created a huge outside city, if you will, and, and, and markets and all sorts of places. Enough so that a 12-year-old might get lost. Think back. And, and so, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those... those uh, things that all of these people. So it's possible you could have all three questions. Sanhedrin, who does he think he is? The Romans, <laughs> what a joke. Who does he think he is? And the people who were visiting, who is this? That he's getting this kind of recognition. And the people that knew who he was cried out, why, he's Jesus of Nazareth. He's the prophet from Nazareth, of Nazareth of Galilee. There is something that has to creep into the back of your head. Can anything good come from Galilee? It's been said before. For some, that would have brought him down a notch. Some might have walked away. For whatever reason, at this point in time, the crowd was ready. They wanted a Messiah. They were sick of the Romans. And here he was coming at Passover. What a perfect time. And they were behind him. In front of him. And all around him. Crying out, Hosanna. Praising the One who comes, the Son of David. Hosanna in the highest. The One who comes in the name of the Lord. And the city was stirred like an earthquake had moved it. The people were electrified. This is the prophet, Jesus of Nazareth, the one from Galilee. You know, the teacher, the miracle worker. And I put in parentheses on my notes with a question mark before and after. Politician, military. I think they were hoping. I know they were. I, the disciples were. They were still trying to figure out who was going to sit on which side of, of Jesus when it got out, when it went, when he had control. 
even after Jesus and the resurrection and he's about to ascend to heaven, they, they, just before you know, they, they say, okay, Jesus, you've been resurrected for 40 days. Now as we're going back to Jerusalem and do it, They didn't realize that the save us of Hosanna had far-reaching picture, much bigger than they could ever have imagined. And we'll see prophecy after prophecy fulfilled then as the Gentiles are brought in to the church. Like I said, Jesus didn't fit the picture. Riding the donkey, homespun clothes, no army, no weapons. And we have people today who will even still wrestle with this question. Who is this Jesus? I recall taking a class, this was before I was a Christian, in, in college. It was a comparative religion class. We spent, I don't know how long, I can't remember now, on Eastern religions. And then we got a couple of days on Christianity. The reason for this, by the way, was that they believed they were teaching that Christianity was based on Eastern religions. There was even, and this was taught with confidence. Jesus, between 12 and 18, was a caravan boy who had gone to India, who had gone to, to, to what today would be Pakistan and, and other areas. And, and so he'd been exposed to all of this, and now he came back and he shuffled it all together with Hebrewism, and he came up with this whole new thing. He was a good man. He was a good teacher. He was a revolutionary. Pretty popular in the 60s to say that. But, you know, you get to the point where you, you start to look at what Josh McDowell writes and what, uh, you know, Peter Stoner wrote about his, the, the, all these different prophecies and stuff. And what they come to is an interesting conclusion. And they're willing to put it in an equation. If all of this prophetic picture is true, and it all comes in Christ, if then, He must be who He says He is. The, the statistics, even in a mathematic equation, say this. But even in a general way, Joshua Gadow will say, Jesus has to be one of three things, but He can't be just a good teacher. He can't be just a good man. Because a good man and a teacher wouldn't do the things Jesus did unless He was who He said He was. Jesus didn't mince words about who He was. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. One one gets to the Father but through me. No one gets saved but through me. I'm the one that gives you heaven. Many mansions have I prepared. It's me who has done this. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Over and over and over again. So if Jesus isn't the Messiah spoken of in prophets, spoken of as in the New Testament and, and taught about through the epistles and spoken of coming again through Revelation, then He's a liar and a deceiver. Nobody wants to say that about Jesus. Not even people who don't like the idea of Christianity. Nobody, it's interesting. They don't want to say Jesus was a liar. 
It's almost like something that sticks. Well, there were a few. The guy that wrote the Passover plot came out in the, in the, in the, in the 60s. The Passover plot was that Jesus, along with the disciples, planned his death on the cross. He drank a cup of, of, of drugs before it all started that were slow to act and they would make him appear as dead. And then when it was all said and done, they rescued him from the tomb and he was alive again. And it's called the Passover plot. In fact, it's addressed to a degree in Scripture. The Sanhedrin told the guards, the Roman guards, they said, say that the, body was, that the disciples came, opened the tomb and stole the body. Passover plot. He said he's alive again. But they don't want to call him a liar. If he wasn't a liar, then he must have been crazy. That's the second alternative. Because only a crazy man would, would go through all of this and put himself on the cross thinking he could save everybody. It's just not the way Rome works. Or, he is who he says he is. The way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He told us very clearly that he came to die on the cross. To pour out his blood. To, to, to give his body, his life. That so whoever would come and believe in him might be saved. And he asked the disciples as he put communion, which we'll share in just a moment, into play as a memorial to him. That's basically what he said to them. This is my body. This is my blood. As often as you share these elements together, do it in memory of me. Until what? I come again. Now, someone might say, well, I've given, you know, through this, uh, people an opportunity to look at this and, and, and maybe scratch their head and say, oh, well, I hadn't thought about that possibility before and, and, and get, put you off on a tad, tangent. If I have, so be it. I'm not concerned about the Holy Spirit losing track of you. Because I am confident that He won't let go of you. Nothing is going to pluck us from His hand. We sang that this morning. But if you do get sidetracked a little bit in this, as, as a lot of people do sometimes, as they're trying to go deeper in their walk with the Lord, do it in prayer. In fact, it's a good habit to be in prayer every time you study the Word or anything you want to read about the Word. I don't know how many of you are familiar with A.W. Tozer. Uh, but he was the, the man known to pray over anything and everything. You know, he, he received a lot of flack at one point because he also read the classics, some of the, the Renaissance literature and some of the Shakespeare stuff and stuff like that. And there, there was no blessing that could come from that. And he says, no, but other than to understand the heart of man and how it works. But he said even that he read on his knees. 
I think there's a, a point there where we would turn and say, Lord, I'm turning on the TV, open my eyes and guard me and protect me. I pick up the newspaper, guard me and protect me. I pick up a book that says it's about Jesus, guard me and protect me. As I open the Word, guard me and open my mind to see You. You're the one that saves me through Your blood, through Your body. Thank You, Lord. I've asked the ushers to come forward to pass the emblems out, hold them until we've been served, and we will share them together.
since we are using some of the Old Testament Scriptures in a prophetic way, I'd mention Psalm 22. Um, Psalm 22's first verse starts out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It takes us immediately to the words of Christ on the cross. And the interesting thing about Psalm 22 is that it is a picture of Christ through His eyes looking down from the cross. Through the Gospels, we look up and see the cross. But here we look through the eyes of Christ and see down from the cross. He saw Himself, uh, according to Psalm 22 and verse 6, as uh, uh, people looking on Him in such a way that he, He would be described as a worm, not a man. In other words, the lowest of all things. In a, in a, you couldn't get any lower than that in the Hebrew thought. People were saying around him, now this is from a psalm written over a thousand years before it happened. It says, the people were walking and mocking him, walking around the, 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 the place where he was hanging. And it says, he trusts the Lord in him, let him deliver him. Let, let the Lord rescue him, for he delights in him. That's exactly what they said. And Jesus saw himself as poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Talks about his hands and his feet being pierced, and then it talks about I can uh, I can count all my bones. They stare and they gloat over me. They divide my garments among themselves. For my clothing they cast lots. This is the picture of the cross. This was something that Jesus knew as he came off the Mount of Olives, riding on the colt. As all the people were crying, Hosanna, he knew what was going to happen. Within a few days, they would be crying, Crucify him. And he went. Because he knew this must happen. It was the plan before the foundation of the world. Before God ever created us, the plan of salvation was already in place. That's how much He loves us. God so loves us that He gave His only Son. That whoever believes in Him shall have eternal life to be saved. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And so at the supper where He had shared with the disciples the meal of Passover, He took a bread and and he gave thanks and, and to the Father and then broke it and he passed it to him and he said, this is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. And he asked them to do it uh, together. He also took the cup of wine and gave it the picture that we now have my blood poured out. And He asked us to drink this in remembrance of Him until He comes again. Father, we come to You. I, I, I wanted to use the words amazed and and. and and awe, but not as amazing and as awe as I should be or need to be. 
I ask that, that You would cause in us to grow that amazement and the awe of who You are and what You've done. That the God of all creation has saved us. And not only saved us, but You've told us that nothing can separate us from, from this, this gift that You have given us. We can't be plucked away from You. And as we rest in the confidence, we ask, Lord, that You would build in us a growth and an understanding and a desire to know You better until that day we see You face to face and know You clearly rather than dimly. And even then, I believe, through all eternity, still growing to know You. We worship You. We thank You for all that You have done for us. Go with us. Guide us. Direct our path. Cause us to rest in You. In Jesus' name, Amen. Would you stand as we close? Thank